Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Who decided what order the Bible's books should be in? And what would happen if we changed it? This is the Bible Reset Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. joined by Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. Have you ever wondered who put the books of the Bible together or why the books are in the order they are? Today we're going to take a look at just a little bit of the history of the Bible as a book, but more importantly talk about why we changed the traditional order of the books when we first developed the Immersed Bible. First though, I think it would be helpful to talk about why book order actually matters. At first glance it feels kind of Bible nerdy, but it can actually make a pretty big difference, I think, for how we engage with Scripture. Yeah, so true, Alex. And if you're new to the Bible Reset, you may be under the impression that our mission to reset the Bible is one-dimensional, that we just wanted to publish Bibles without chapters and verses. But we do have more than one string on our violin. And another element of the Bible that is overdue for a reset is the book order. And this is uh, more than just window dressing. Uh, we're finding that people that read the immersed Bibles with a new book order, that it's opening up new vistas for them. And just to get it out on the table, um, you know, if, for example, the Bible in its current book order, uh, we were going to make a movie out of that and to follow the plot line using the current order, it would frankly be convoluted. And, uh, you know, the reviewers might give us some rotten tomatoes. So this is a conversation that needs to happen. You know, it's, it's probably worth saying right at the beginning here, this book order thing only matters if you're reading whole books or reading big to get the whole story. If you're just jumping around to read a verse here, verse of the day, a chapter there, doing your devotional, it doesn't really matter, right, what yeah. order the books are in. But if you're reading the New Testament, for example, from start to finish, changing the order of the books can totally reframe how you read that document. So, you know, to kick us off, <laughs> uh, like, is this actually allowed? Are we messing <laughs> with sacred stuff here? Are we stomping on hallowed ground if we if we change the order around? Well, that's a real question, Alex. And it is a question that Gladden and I faced and wrestled with as Bible publishers. And I do remember the time with my team uh, where we took a giant whiteboard and drew a line down the middle. And on one side, we put sacred and on the other side, not sacred. So what about the Bible is sacred and what about the modern Bible is not sacred? And frankly, this is an easy one. Uh, you know, we can we, there's freedom to change the book order and, you know, not not be struck by lightning. And the reality is, is that uh, the book order has been a very fluid matter throughout most of the Bible's history. So, for example, if you're studying history of the Bible, you know, there were 79 different book orders in the First Testament alone, just to show you and to demonstrate wow. how fluid it really was. And it was then, of course, the printing press that forced um, a standardized uh, version. And even in today, even in today's world, there is more than than one standardized version. If you belong to a Greek Orthodox Church or a Syrian Orthodox Church, you would be studying the Bible from a different book order. So 
the fact is, is that variety in the order of the Bible in the Bible's history has been the norm. Yeah, and I think it's also worth mentioning, um, just to avoid, as always, the temptation to be anachronistic and read back our experience and understanding back into the Bible. We have to remember that with the ancient Bible, there was not a single printed copy going around anyway. It's not like we're talking about printed order of books in this massive volume. We're talking about traditions that were oral at first anyway, and when they began to be written down on scrolls, kind of one scroll per book, unless, of course, it was a longer book and it had to be broken up, you didn't have all the books together in a single volume anyway. So we're not talking about a printed order. We're talking about the way they would talk about the Bible. So when they talked about the Bible or wrote about the Bible in other writings, they would list the books. And we're talking about those lists at first. It wasn't until much later in the Bible's history that we have printed volumes that actually can put the books together in this or that order. <clears throat> so again, as always, it's just so good to know the history to realize kind of where these ideas come from. The first thing we should really say, really about both Testaments, is that it was the major grouping of books that was set at the beginning. And then there was variety of individual books within those major groupings. It's a thing that people don't always think about, the fact that it's not just an order of all the books of the First Testament or all the books of the New Testament. It's what categories did you have? You know, like Moses, prophets, writings, those categories came first. And then within those categories, they would have debates, actually, um, and try out different orders of books within those categories. So it's important to keep in mind categories or groupings and then individual books kind of within them. Glenn, it would, it would be accurate to say then, too, that even Jesus himself acknowledged some of these categories. Yeah. In fact, I think that's some of the major evidence for the three-part Hebrew Bible is the references that Jesus makes, for instance, in Luke after his resurrection appearances. And he says, um, you know, the law, the prophets, then he refers to the Psalms. This actually comes up more than once. And those three-part, really, categories, he's talking there about the five books of Moses, and then the prophets, and then the writings, of which Psalms was the major book. So it was a common way of referring to the three major parts of the Hebrew Bible, um, which, of course, is the way the Jews first kind of put the books together before it was translated into Greek. I don't know that we think of Jesus sometimes in those terms, but in essence, this is a, a veiled statement and acknowledgement that that the scriptures that he himself had studied uh, growing up, that there was an inherent order. And uh, I, I think what we see here is that there was a, a level of sophistication with Jesus mm. in terms of his thinking about mm. the scriptures and uh, and how the how the scriptures were arranged. And he was, in essence, following the uh, the tradition of that day and the arrangement of that day. Yeah, and it just, again, makes the point Jesus was fully immersed in first century Judaism, and he didn't come as some outsider, kind of just blowing the whole thing apart. He grew up, you know, going to synagogue. He was in a Jewish community, so he would have picked up everything about the way first century Judaism kind of thought about and arranged the Bible. And so that's the stream he's in, and that's where he does his work. 
we should probably, you know, just take a moment here before we go any further and talk about the Septuagint, because already it's fascinating. But in the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, because there were, of course, lots of Jewish communities out spread around the Roman Empire by this time, and Greek is the dominant language of the people, right? So really, to be a Jew outside of Palestine means that your dominant language is going to be Greek. They got the they got their scriptures translated into Greek, and immediately they changed the order, right? Even the major categories. So instead of keeping kind of Moses, the law, and then prophets, and then writings, they did law, history, poetry, and then prophets. And so they were messing with the categories, and then, of course, they changed the order of books within those categories. So even before Christianity kind of comes onto the scene in the first century, you have Jews already making major changes to how the Bible gets put together. And since the Septuagint was really, by and large, the Bible of the early church, it's that new Greek order that got carried over into Christian scriptures, rather than the older kind of Hebrew Bible and its categories in order. So already, there's major changes in the tradition, and the Christians are inherit kind of one stream of that with the Septuagint. Okay, just had to make that historical note, because it's again, it's an important part of the history. Um, so when we get to the New Testament now, uh, we find the same thing kind of happening as a pattern. The groups were first, and then came the question of order of books within groups. So the Gospels were almost always put together, the four Gospels in a group, but then different parts of the church would order them differently. Secondly came a kind of a collection of Paul's letters. And then at the end, there was the more general letters that were written, not by Paul, but by the other apostles. So these groupings were pretty standard, but within them, again, diversity of order, depending on where you were, which gospel you would want to put first, what order you did Paul's letters. Everything was up for grabs kind of outside of the major groupings. So uh, just to summarize for, for those of you keeping score at home, <laughs> um, so there's there's first the Hebrew Bible, right? Where the, the main groups were the Torah, the prophets, and then the other writings. Then there was the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And they had this different set of categories. So there was the law, history, poetry, and prophets. And that's the book order that, that got carried into our modern Christian Bibles. And then the New Testament categories were the Gospels, Paul's letters, and the other letters. Um, but within those categories, like you've been saying, Glenn, uh, there's kind of a wide variety of, of book order, except for, correct me if I'm wrong, the five books of Moses have always kind of been in that order, right? Kind right. of throughout all the different... It, yeah. yeah. It's kind of the one place you don't really find variety. So that seems to... I mean, it, it was the first core of the Hebrew Bible. It, yeah. it kind of references, you know, chronologically in the story, it's the oldest material also contains some of the oldest material likely, you know, handed down in oral tradition. So, um, yeah, it was the piece you don't mess with. But it's interesting, like, as soon as you get past the Torah, I mean, even those first history books that followed that, the first prophets, um, you'll find the list reflecting different orders. So the, the change was strong, it was immediate. And I think the big takeaway from the first part of our program here is simply there is no single perfect book order that was kind of handed down to us from heaven. Inspiration did not cover book order. 
They've changed over time. And therefore, we have freedom, not just to be random or gimmicky, but I think we have freedom to be intentional about what book order we make and why. And we'll get to that. But that's really what's at the heart of what we are trying to do with Immerse when we did change the order. Yeah. One final note worth noting um, is because these books uh, were originally recorded on scrolls, there was a built-in technology problem. Mm -hmm. And that is that some of the longer ones wouldn't fit onto a single scroll. So you had single books, um, the single books of um, you know, Samuel King's that ultimately then were split into to four books, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. And then the same thing was true of the single book Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. It got split into separate books. And then finally, in the New Testament, um, Luke and Acts got split up with John wedged in between. So technically speaking, there really are 59 books of the Bible and not not 66 books. And, <laughs> you know, if you're at home playing <laughs> home version of Jeopardy and it asks how many books were in the Bible, you should probably still answer 66, <laughs> but it would be kind of a nod, nod, wink, wink. I really know that there were, right. technically speaking, 59. Yeah. yeah. And there's this really interesting spot, uh, Glenn and Paul, you can correct me if I'm off here. I think it's the end of Second Chronicles and the very beginning of Ezra. Is that it? Where there's uh-huh. it repeats itself, like the last two <laughs> verses of Second Chronicles and the first two of Ezra are the same thing, right? And yeah, uh, like exactly. a carryover from the scrolls where they were they repeated the the end of the first one and the beginning of the the second one to show that they were kind of a continual work, right? Something like that. Yeah, exactly. You got the right spot, and yeah, it's kind of a way of stitching together what had to be separated in the scrolls. So you yeah. had Chronicles split into two, first and second Chronicles, simply because that's how much they could fit on a scroll. And then you had a really Ezra and Nehemiah able to fit on a scroll by, by themselves. So they were combined. But to show that overlap, the wording does kind of repeat itself. And it's really interesting, depending on how your translation handles it. Some translations try to kind of hide the fact a little bit. But hmm. if it's, if it's a, a more kind of closely related to the Hebrew wording, it actually stops in mid-sentence at the end of Second Chronicles. So when you start reading and you're you start reading Ezra after having just finished that last part of Second Chronicles, you're saying, wait, didn't I just read this? And you look at it and the sentence continues. So again, just showing that um, they were trying to say, look, these books overlap. So if you want to read the narrative, you'll continue reading Ezra and Nehemiah after reading Chronicles. All right. So with that background on the flexibility of book order, uh, we can turn our attention to the specifics of the new order of the books that we worked on with the Immerse Bibles. So knowing that we were free to arrange the books uh, to, to fit what we were trying to do with Immerse, our guiding principles were, you know, what would be the most helpful for people reading the whole Bible or a major section of it kind of cover to cover, start to finish. And uh, and what order within those uh, might lead to to new insights and, and new understandings. So we'll start again with the First Testament. 
Okay, so we take the First Testament and we divide it into five major groups. You have to remember with Immerse, another thing that we're trying to do there is not just get the books into a certain order, but we're also thinking about, you know, groups of churches reading the whole Bible together. So we needed volumes that kind of fit into a nice eight-week reading schedule for churches. So that was another factor was to, you know, because you could say in our grouping, Beginnings, which is Torah, and then Kingdoms, which are the history books that immediately follow the five books of Moses, that's a single history, really, going all the way from Genesis through Samuel Kings. We divided it into two, which we call Beginnings and Kingdoms, simply because of the kind of the dynamics of the program and having a nice eight-week plan. But it basically follows that opening history, which is kind of a prophetic telling of the history of Israel. Why does Israel exist in the world? Why did Israel end up at the end of Kings, right? The end of Samuel Kings, um, the nation is is gone into exile, and it matches kind of the exodus, I mean, the creation story of the exile from the garden in the Garden of Eden. So the same thing that happened to Adam and Eve happens to Israel at the end. So there's kind of a continuity through that entire history. Next, kind of following the Hebrew Bible, we have the prophets. Then we have the poets, which are um, poetic books, which are really categorized in two different groups, which we would call song lyric books, and then wisdom books. And then finally, chronicles, which picks up the books that were in the Hebrew Bible, known as the writings. So those are our big groupings, which kind of goes back primarily to the ideas of the Hebrew Bible, which of course is older than the Greek translation that came later. So the big idea here is to introduce readers to the history of Israel in Genesis through Samuel Kings, then telling them the commentary on the prophets and then the writing. So we're, we're really, although we have five volumes, I guess you could say we're going back to the big three of the Hebrew Bible is the major kind of category. And so if you're, if you're reading Immerse, uh, one of the first places that you'll come to where you're going to see a fairly radical uh, rearrangement of the books is in the prophets. Mm. So there are 15, you know, different prophet uh, writers. And, you know, if you grew up in Sunday school, uh, and I realize that not everybody grew up in Sunday school, but you learned there that there were two groupings. There were what we called the major prophets and the minor prophets. And the major prophets were the big books, right? Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then the minor prophets was, you know, I don't know, it was maybe like being in the minor leagues. You, you <laughs> were smaller, yeah. uh, smaller, smaller books. And, and frankly, that just really isn't helpful to arrange them from the right. longest uh, to, to, to the shortest. And without going into to too much detail, basically you have three different time periods in which these prophets are speaking. And the first time was before Israel and Judah went into exile. So you have prophets that wrote to the people prior to the exile. And then you have a grouping of prophets that wrote to the people while they were in the mess uh, of the exile. And then there was a third grouping of prophets that wrote to the people after they had returned to their uh, to their homeland. And so that's what we've we've tried to do with uh, and what we have done with Immerse is to to group these prophets together according to whether people uh, were pre pre-exile, exile, 
or after the exile. Um, if you're following closely, it's kind of hard to know where Joel was written. And then you have Jonah, which is kind of an outlier. It's about a prophet, but it's not a prophecy. And so we put both of those books at the end. You know, it's interesting. This is just when you said that, Paul, I was struck by this thing about major and minor. And it just made me realize, again, how important language matters. Hmm. Right. I mean, it's a big deal to call something major and something minor. I mean, it, it refers to size. OK, but as people hear that, you can't help. But even if it's subconsciously thinking, OK, these ones matter and these ones don't. <laughs> right. Hmm. That's how yeah. we use the words major and minor. It, and it's, it's one of the reasons why I think we kind of sometimes have to just step back and look at things and say, why do we use those words? Those words are not helpful for invitations to people to take all of it seriously. Kind of like what we did with First and New Testaments, right? We we ditched the word old because for all of us, something, if you see a choice between old and new, what are you going to do? You're going to go for the new and ignore the old. So these words kind of have baggage. And when we apply them to the Bible, I think it doesn't help us to use words like that. So we went with what Hebrews uses for the covenants, and they talk about the first covenant and then the new covenant. And so we picked that up and used that to apply to um, the two major parts of the Bible. But the same thing's true with major and minor. So I think words matter. Sometimes it's just a good thing to step back and say, hey, we should quit talking like that. It doesn't help people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the language matters and the order matters. That's two yeah. things that we're we're talking about here. And by the way, if you're somebody that has struggled with the prophets and you've read them and you felt like you were in a fog, um, try reading them in a better historical order. It's not mm. like, uh, it won't it won't be like um, you know falling off a log. It, it it's it's still a complex ancient writings, but it will, it will, it will revolutionize your view of the prophets as you read in, in better historical order. Yeah. It follows the storyline. So it just matches the history in a much better way. I think that can only be helpful. Okay. So after the prophets, um, we have two different groups that were originally part of the writings in the Hebrew Bible. First, we switch from chronology to literary genre, because when you're talking about song lyrics and wisdom books, um, historical chronology doesn't really matter anymore. These are different kinds of literary genres. So there's three major books, right? Um, Psalms, Lamentations, and Song of Songs, which are collection of song lyrics. So the main thing to know as you start reading those books is that these, these books, right, the elements of them were sung in Israel's worship, in their gatherings together. And so reading the poetry there as song lyrics is really helpful as you're thinking about the use of metaphor, the rich evocative nature of the language. So the, the literary genre be, kind of comes to the fore there. And then the second part of our poets volume is wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. There's an intentional order there. Proverbs kind of sets the basics of wisdom. Like this is the way the world works. Ecclesiastes says, whoa, not so fast. There's sometimes where that little easy proverb doesn't work out in real life. And then Job comes along and says, whoa, 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 <laughs> right? Like really full stop, because there's major problems where it seems to be the opposite of what proverbs say. If you live well, things will go great for you. If you don't live wisely, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. And Job says, yeah, well, what about this? Here's a righteous man who's suffering. 
And so it takes this wisdom idea to an even farther place. So reading those books in those order, again, is really helpful, kind of get the basics of wisdom, um, then some questions, and then even the more major kind of questioning that happens in the book of Job. So uh, literary genre is the big idea in the poet's volume. And then our last volume in the First Testament, the Chronicles, has three books. So there's a new telling of Israel's history. This time, it's an older history. I mean, it, it tells the story um, kind of looking back through the lens of the exile. So the earlier history in Samuel Kings tells the story kind of leading into the exile and why Israel got into that trouble. Chronicles kind of came into its final form after the exile, so it's later. And it does it from the perspective of worship and the place of Israel's worship in the bigger story of the world. So that's why we have Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah in um, this last group in the, in the First Testament, telling the whole story of the world, really starting with Adam at the beginning of Chronicles and then ending with the post-exilic community as they're beginning to get set up. And then we have two books um, that close the First Testament, the story of Esther, which is the story of Jews living in another country, which is really the major story of Israel between the Testaments. So in the time period between the First Testament and the New Testament, Israel is having to learn what is it like to live under the foreign powers that are pagan, and there's real pressure to not be a faithful Jew. And these last two books are about that. So that's what the story of Esther is about. And then we end with an apocalyptic book, a book of stories and highly symbolic visions that make up the book of Daniel. It's a new kind of writing that we haven't really found in the First Testament before. It's an apocalyptic book. Has to, it's a new kind of literary genre. And again, the big idea in these final books, how do you p maintain hope and faithfulness while suffering under foreign powers, which is kind of the perfect segue into what we will find the Jewish situation to be when we come to the New Testament. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. That's helpful. And, you know, as you were talking about Lamentations being song lyrics and me just, you know, knowing what's in Lamentations and thinking of people singing that, mm. just, just kind of weird, you know, like maybe maybe Israel had the first emo or, you know, punk rock band the, wor totally. the world has ever known. <laughs> right. Like what, Singing through Lamentations, right? Right. Like what kind of music went to that? I yeah. mean, I think we're so used to praise and worship opening our worship services. Um, we don't do lament songs very much, yeah. but the Bible has a collection of song lyrics that are all lament. And yeah. I think it's kind of a, an indictment of us to a degree that we should find ways to communally lament when there are big problems in our life together. Yep. All right. So, uh, so that was the first Testament. We're moving on to the new Testament, which I think is just really fun. We did, we did a pretty major overhaul there with the book order. Yeah. The, uh, the new Testament is somewhat revolutionary. And, uh, if you look at what we did, you know, we, we started, uh, you know, by looking at the traditional book order, which, uh, smooshes together all of the gospels at the beginning which can make the reader feel like they're in the bible's version of groundhog day and by mm -hmm. the way smushing is a highly technical term in biblical studies and german so it's german or, or latin or something isn't it, it is that it? word smushing yeah <laughs> so you know reading matthew and mark and luke one right after the other 
um, is highly repetitive and really doesn't help the, the reader to understand the unique point of view that each one has for the Jesus story. So what we did is that we developed a, a new framework using the four Gospels as pillars. And so we thought if we take the four Gospels and combine each of them with other New Testament books that naturally go with it. And this gave us a chance to arrange the entire New Testament as presenting four major perspectives on Jesus the Messiah. It's kind of a cross-shaped pattern that introduces readers to all the richness of the uh, full New Testament perspective and really the meaning of Jesus. And so the uh, immersed New Testament is, uh, you know, Jesus uses Jesus as the interpretive center. Mm, nice. And to be that intentional, I think it it does open whole new vistas on really how to think about the New Testament witness to Jesus. So we open with Luke-Acts. It's a two-volume work that was meant to be read as a single coherent history um, as we've said before in this program, I do believe Luke is still angry that somebody thought it was a good idea, but John, between his two volumes, when he wrote yeah. them as meant to be together, um, that'll get straightened out one day, no doubt. John, when Luke gets his day in court. Okay, so this single volume, right, in, in two pieces of work, Luke and Acts, gives readers an overview of the life of Jesus and the earliest Christian movement right off the bat. So we just thought that's a great way to start the New Testament, because right away, you're getting one of the tellings of the story of Jesus and what happened to his earliest followers. And that's your introduction to the New Testament. And it takes up about a fourth of the space of the entire New Testament, by the way. So it's a major work. And it gives you an overview, kind of everything you need to know. So what books naturally go with Luke's two volumes? Paul's letters seems to make the most sense, since Luke was a traveling companion of Paul's and was deeply influenced by Paul's theology. So, um, again, rather than the old largest to smallest order, which is what you'll find in most Bibles today, right? The, the, the longest letters from Paul down to the shortest. And you hmm. think about that, like, okay, what does that really do for me to, to help understand Paul's thinking, biggest to smallest, um, not yeah. particularly helpful. So we ordered the letters in chronology again. We, we said, look, which ones did he write first? And yes, there is some debate about that. Um, so it might be this book, it might be that book. But um, regardless, if you tweak the thing a little bit here or there in terms of the list of chronology, you're basically going to get Paul's thinking as it developed over time which is one benefit. The other thing you get is you can really see what issues in the church came to the fore as the New Testament churches started to develop in the first century over time. So what issues were there at the beginning? What issues were there toward the end of Paul's life? And you can see the growth and the development of what's happening in first century Christianity. It's extremely helpful as you're beginning to get your bearings on what's going on in the New Testament. Yeah, Glenn, I, I would have to say that um, when we look at uh, the current arrangement of Paul's letters from the longest to shorter, <laughs> yeah. there, there's just nothing rational um, ab about that. And uh, Dr. Chris Smith, who's a friend of all of ours, has made this statement. He says, the order actively discourages us from mm. trying to understand Paul's letters 
as we should within the context of his life and the development of his thought. And uh, I think that that's, that's true. Yeah. So uh, moving on, um, the next section in Immerse is built around the pillar of uh, the Gospel of John. Like Mark. The first- Mark. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. See, is- that's what we meant. We meant that this is supposed to be an ongoing debate and discussion within <laughs> exactly. the church, what order the books go in. Exactly. So you're just exhibiting your freedom there, Paul. Yep. That's good. Good. Uh, so, yeah, the Institute for Bible Reading, we do know that uh, the next <laughs> section was uh, the Gospel of Mark, again, which is likely the, the first gospel to be written. And then combined with Mark's gospel, we put the uh, the books of Peter following that. Mark was uh, a, a protege of Peter. And so really, Mark is is the life of Jesus through the eyes of Peter. And then the third section is Matthew's gospel, which was written primarily to Jewish Christians in the first century. And then there were two other books that were written primarily to Jewish audiences, Hebrews and James. And so we paired them with Matthew. And then finally, we took John's gospel, um, likely written uh, as the last of the four and the most unique of the gospels, and it's paired with John's three letters. And then capped off, of course, by the book of Revelation, which is another apocalyptic book. So just like the First Testament, ends with an apocalyptic book, Daniel, uh, the, the full Bible ends with the apocalyptic book of Revelation. Yeah. And, you know, personally, I think it's, it's pretty cool, you know, that to our knowledge, uh, this concept for arranging the New Testament, you know, we did it in a previous edition of a reader's Bible that we created, but it's really, you know, never done, been done before that we know of in the history of, of the New Testament over 2000 years. And it's, it's just cool looking at the you know, the history of the Bible as a book, the flexibility of book order over the t- over time and being able to innovate in that way. And, you know, we're not necessarily saying that this should be the new standard order, throw out the old one, put in this one, institute it widely across all Bibles everywhere, but, but more so that we should take advantage of the freedom that we have to be creative with the book order, right? Yeah. And this is all of a piece with our overall mission to get a community of Bible readers back, right? I mean, we're trying to move away from Bible sampling as the mode of Christian existence with the Bible, get people deeply immersed in the text, and to read big, to read the whole story. And this is where book order fits, just like taking out chapters and verses, you know, makes total sense if you're trying to develop a better Bible for reading, reading at length. Um, Rearranging the book order makes sense if you're being intentional about the order to help readers gain understanding and see what's happening with more ease by having the books in a rational order. So our intentionality is all focused on the same goal. Same thing that we did with our whole format change of the Bible. It's to make the Bible really a reader's book and to make it more invitational for people. They just feel good. It's easier. You're not fighting things as much. And using our freedom to change the book order for the benefit of just regular people who want to read the Bible and make sense of it. I think we've said this before that our goal is not in any way, shape, or form to demonize the modern Bible. But 
by the very uh, name of our podcast, we've <laughs> we've mm-hmm. been clear that mm-hmm. we believe that the Bible, you know, is due for a reset. And one of those areas that I would say is overdue for a reset is really this this matter of the book order. We uh, saw a kind of a comical illustration of this in one author who writes about this. He said, if you look at the current order of, of uh, the Bible's books now and the kind of the chronological mess that they're in, uh, compared it to uh, a story of a kid who went off to college and when he came back, he walked into his bedroom and his mother had rearranged the books on his shelf and she rearranged them according to color. <laughs> not, not, yeah. not really helpful. And right. in, in, in some ways, uh, this, this, is, this is similar. Right. So uh, just to wrap, we would say this and we would say it strongly. The book order, book order matters. <laughs> and it matters, it matters a lot. And we have an opportunity in our generation to make some uh, much needed changes. And the reality is, is that this, again, is not just window dressing, but we have a generation that's struggling mightily mm. with the Bible. Uh, we're, we're mired in quicksand, and we need to find ways to throw people a rope and get them up on solid ground. Mm-hmm. And book order is one of those things that will do that. Yep. And, and just to reiterate what you said at the beginning, Glenn, this is kind of an academic exercise if readers are just jumping around a verse here, chapter there, reading devotionally in Luke one day, Psalms the next day, and Exodus the day after that. Um, but if they're doing what the Immerse volumes are designed for, which is cover-to-cover reading, and we would think that most Bibles should be designed for that cover-to-cover reading more so than serial referencing, Order, ordering the books in a way that makes good chronological sense or good sense for just reading from start to finish is is going to help them grasp the story better than than they otherwise would. So that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much to all of you who have given us good feedback on the show and shared episodes with your friends. It really makes a huge difference and, and we really appreciate it. So if you want to help more people find the Bible Reset podcast, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next one.